This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And we are doing a very special episode of the Awards Watch podcast, episode 200, live here at the Telluride Film Festival. Joining me today is our editor-in-chief, Eric Anderson. Bet you didn't know it was 200, did you, boss? It's 200, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> We're also joined by Sophia Simonillo. Hi, guys. And she was on our show two weeks ago, Christina Nguyen-Biro. I'm so honored to be here for 200, yeah. and also to be here with you guys at Telluride. You kind of adopted me into this little family, so I'm so happy. Thank you so much. It's been the four of us up here in the mountains of Telluride for the last, what, five days or so? Mm-hmm. And it has been nothing but a lot of laughs and late <laughs> nights, no food, charcuterie boards. Lots well, of crying. Lots of crying. Oh my God. Lots of jokes about the sea. <laughs> And of course, lots of movies. So, at the same time, I want to let everybody know that we are recording this in a room together on a mic. So it's not our usual quality of of, of uh, podcasting sound that we usually do. But we all wanted to be here in the same room together to talk about these extraordinary films of the fiftieth Telluride Film Festival, two hundredth episode, talking about the fiftieth. Tell you right, film festival, and what a, a year it was. There were so many great films here, but I wanted to go back to our conversation we had two weeks ago, and I asked Christina and Sophia about their expectations for their first time here at the festival. So I'm going to kick it over to you guys first. Sophia, you can start. How did you like the Tell You Right Film Festival? I never want to leave. This is the best place on earth. It's the greatest film festival, period. I'm not kidding. I've been to quite a few, and I just feel like Telluride has just such a unique quality to it. It's so intimate, and I brought up when we recorded that preview episode that I was excited by the fact that there aren't awards here. It's something that feels like a celebration of the filmmakers, of the films, and I was right about that, but also like nothing that happened here, it, it all was it all surpassed my expectations. Like anything that I expected, just went out the window the second I got here because it really is surreal. Like you are in one of the most beautiful places on earth, getting to spend all of your time watching movies, and yeah, I just loved meeting people and waiting in line. It was just so wonderful, and the movies were incredible. Like the slate was just better than. And I know we did predictions on the slate, but actually seeing the movies and learning about the quality of the movies just made everything that much better. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. 
because we can play the guessing game all we want as to what movies are going to be here. And Eric does a good job. You did a good job covering all that. And yet, it's when we get here, Christina was lucky to get here a little bit before all of us and get our get the schedule and start sending it out. And we were all in our airports kind of frantically trying to figure out what we're going to see opening night. But Christina, this was much like all of us, but especially for you, this was such a big bucket list. It was. Item, right? And I echo everything that Sophia said, but and it was over and above any expectations I would have had. I think Julie Hunsinger and her crew, the way they curate this festival, and I've also been to quite a few festivals, there was... It was at least five or six that I'm willing to say are almost masterpieces of the movies that I saw, and everything else was really, really interesting and good. Um, so I'm really impressed by that. I made, we made, I think, line friends, people behind us and in front of us, and what we talked about was movies. What did you see? What did you like? And everyone was so enthusiastic with some incredibly fun celebrity encounters who just seem so, you know, they're in their t-shirts and jeans and they're also in line. What did you see? What do you want to see? And it's just such a humble experience in the midst of these glorious mountains where you're, it's just amazing. It really was fantastic. And to be able to be here with you as well, as I said at the beginning, was just over and above what I could have expected. Eric, you're five, right? This, well, I mean, it's technically... Four, because 2020 was canceled. Yeah. Otherwise, this would be my fifth. But fourth in person, yes. Yeah. And um, it was different than when we did the show last year, live here. Because, obviously, there's a big thing that's looming over Hollywood right now. Um, and it was talked a lot about at Venice. It's talked a lot about here at the Telluride Film Festival, which is the, the SAG and WGA strikes that are going on. Um, not a lot of photo ops. Not a lot of photos to be taken. I think Julie Hunsinger was trying to do the best she can to to be sensitive to everything that's going on in the and industry. The actors that were the here. The actors that were here that were not, I repeat, not promoting Voting, their material, no. but just wanted to come and be kind of just fans of cinema for the weekend. But how did you, uh, what did you think about all of that, Eric, and how it was handled? Well, I think one of the fun things about the Telluride Film Festival is that even in its 50th year, it feels all the time like the early days of Sundance, which was never really about star quality kind of elements. Um, and, you know, like Christina said, the, the actors that are here are in jeans and t-shirts and hanging out in lines and doing everything like any of us else are. And they're here for the exact same reason that, that we're here. So conversations and interactions with actors and directors and anybody involved in their films are really on the same kind of playing level in a way that I think they want and prefer and, and we do as well. I think this year might be the best single year of films since I've been coming. I think it was extraordinary and like everyone said, even though we, you know, looked at the likelies and what was going to be here, it doesn't really matter until you hear and you actually see them. And I think almost everything surpassed what we thought that they were going to be. It's um, it definitely brought everything really back to the movies by not having you know a really high level of of uh, actor involvement. 
Uh, and I, I certainly miss that. I think anybody uh, else does as well. And they, and I think we, we had like one experience today uh, <laughs> talking to uh, uh, Casey Affleck during the brunch who sat down at our table and just wanted to talk about his own of interest. Uh, and I'm glad that Christina and Sophia had that experience because it's basically uh, emblematic of what the entire festival is like yeah. and the informality of it and the kind of equality of it. Because a lot of elements of the Telluride Film Festival, the expense and everything, kind of remove a certain level of equality to of access. Of course, there's an elite. But once you're here, it feels like everybody is really on the same page mm -hmm. at all times. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that this lineup and this year was exceptional. Yeah, and, it, and you know, for me, year two, um, totally different than the, fir the first year I was here. I mean, um, there were a lot less, I think, parties, and there were a lot less um, sort of the normal things that you would find at this festival because I think of the WGA strike and because of SAG and I think that everyone here did for the most part the best they could to to acknowledge um, what the ongoing situation is and it's not getting any better but we still wanted to see movies and we still wanted to be together we had great experiences like what you're talking about you know we all got to see Casey Affleck for a couple of minutes today at the, <laughs> the Patreon it's not just that we got to see. It was just that it was. You got to talk to. We were just but that's, having but that's, burgers and talking about no, a movie. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what happens. Yeah. So informal. Yeah. But that happens more and more throughout the festival normally than than just a one-time occurrence. Mm -hmm. And and so and that yeah and it's. It's or we're running into Dakota Johnson in, in the bathroom. Yes. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> that, as well. That's actually shockingly common at the yeah. Telluride yeah. Festival. <laughs> While you're crying. Yeah. Also crying. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> because of a movie. But then we, but we all got here. Um, Sophia and mine's bus broke down trying to oh get out of Oh, my God. Yeah. That was uh, not fun. But that was the only, I think, bad experience. That's it, yeah. On this whole trip, really. And, and I think that this is a place of, for anyone that's never been before, it's a place of true therapy for mm -hmm. anybody that loves film, but it really it, the, the city of Telluride is so beautiful and has so much to offer outside of this film festival every single year that you just come here and be taken by the, the beauty of this whole place or ride the gondolas mm -hmm. and go up, uh, you know, and, and explore up top of the mountains on the other side of the mountains, uh, everything that this place has to offer. But what this place does offer every Labor Day weekend is a bounty of movies that we will all be talking about throughout the fall season, and it's one of the first kickoffs into the Oscar season. Now, we are not going to be talking about any Oscar predictions whatsoever, so if you're going to be turning this thing <laughs> off right now, you can, well, blame Eric Anderson for that, but it was his decision. But also, not everybody on the team has seen these uh, films yet. Um, there are also a lot of stuff out of Venice that we haven't seen that we'd like to give reactions to down the road, especially after New York regional festivals, AFI, um, and also, you know, it just wouldn't be right to talk about an incomplete year when we have not seen the full slate of stuff. But it did give a lot of interesting perspective on some films that we were looking forward to. And there was one film that was the first film that we all saw together, 
Can yeah. I just first say yeah. that I identified a couple of themes before oh. the bulk of the movies oh. that I just want to quickly say. First of all, people, sex is back at the movies. And it's She's not lying. Great please. sex, empowered sex, crazy sex. Um, we're, um, we'll talk about which movies those were, but that's the first thing. The other one we've already talked a little bit about that, and that's crying. I think many of us around this table cried. There's one certain movie I cried for an hour and 20 minutes, um, and that was very powerful emotionally in a way that I don't think I've had so intensely for two, three days. And the other one is Marriage Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those three things came and went in so many of the movies we saw and that the writers and, and the artists of, that they curated for this particular festival seemed to come back to so many times. I just wanted to set that stage before we jumped into it. Also, yeah. writers are having a bad time. There be, lots of writers are being depicted in movies having tremendous existential crises. So, and I happen to be married to one, so we'll see what he thinks when he sees a, these movies. I don't know <laughs> a single writer that isn't going through an existential crisis no. at any given but time. But the, these artists are obviously writing about themselves, which mm -hmm. also makes, that's why it's so personal, I think, many of the movies we're going to be talking about. Well, some of these writers and directors are coming with that material for the first time since post-pandemic as well. And so it's interesting for them to bring that up. But yeah, that's probably also what every writer here at Telluride was feeling a little bit of an existential crisis, when, especially when you have to look and make a schedule on Wednesday night and try to make sure you're hitting all the premieres. <laughs> uh, but they had the special Patreon screening, which was none other than the return of Jeff Nichols, um, who had been gone for seven years uh, since Loving and Midnight Special came out in the same year. And he returns with the Bike Riders that stars Tom Hardy and Austin Butler and Jodie Comer's interesting accent choices. And I wrote the review up on the website, which is uh, live right now. Uh, I, I think that for the most of us, I'm not gonna speak for everybody here, but I, at least from my experience, I, I really like Jeff Nichols as a director. I think his movies are, are usually very fantastic and very, uh, very intimate uh, depictions of, of life. And for some reason, this thing did not work for me at all. Um, beyond uh, the, the technical achievements that I think that his his team that he's been together for almost 15 years have really, they really know how to make a damn good looking picture, but substance wise, this thing is missing a lot of things. The performances are uneven in, in my opinion. Um, Jodie Comer, my God. I, 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 I still don't know where to side on this performance. I, maybe I need to see it again, but Austin Butler, while good, I think is wasted. Hardy is kind of doing his usual grunts and hearty, you know, sort of stuff, you know, that we've seen him do it before. But, uh, Sophia, what did you think of the, the, the bike riders? The bike riders was fine. I think it was <laughs> not, you know, one of my favorite movies throughout the festival. I called it a Goodfellas ripoff yes. based in Chicago. I think if you go into it, you will definitely see the similarities in terms of the framing devices the music that's used. I think he's trying to go for something similar, but unfortunately it just didn't all add up for me. And I think that, you know, his inspiration for the piece was interesting, looking at a book of photographs of all of these bike riders um, in Chicago, but it just, it needed a little bit more for me, but I didn't hate it. I thought it was a fine start to the festival, but the two that I saw after mm -hmm. really knocked it out of the park for me. We'll talk about those here in a second. Yep. 
Christina, you you were I probably like, more positive about than anyone here in the group about the backgrounds, right? Not about the the film oh. itself, which I thought was quite uneven. I do think there are particular scenes which were very interesting, but I am more positive than you on Jodie Comer because yeah. I thought she was the one. If something helped this framing device and held it together, which didn't work, it was her. Mm -hmm. And she brought an emotional core to the movie that I didn't think the other characters really got any sort of backstory, any sort of explanation. They were just bike riders, so to speak. And I think she, she held it together. And I liked her performance. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I wouldn't say that the movie was something I'll be going back mm -hmm. to. Eric, did you like jump it on the bike riders, or would you like give me off with this? Room, room. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no room, room, room. I hated it. Yeah. Hate? Yeah, I, I really did. And the, and the more <laughs> the more that I've been able to kind of sit on it, and I, I think I give it two and a half stars, which I stand by, and, and I, yeah, I really did not like it. You're not going to change your uh, score? I will not be changing asleep? my score after 12 years of, or 12 hours of kind of just thinking about it for a minute. So I, I don't really... But then you're not going to change it again after another 12 And hours. I'm not going to change it if somebody thinks that my opinion is wrong. So, no, I okay. will not be changing my score. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for clarifying. I think yeah. the audience wanted to I have a little bit of integrity. But, no, it's, it's, a little bit? it's certainly not something that I went in... With any anticipation of not being good, I had nothing mm -hmm. but hope because I love Jeff Nichols. Uh, I thought the idea was fantastic and the concept origin was fantastic. And I really liked everybody in it. Um, but it really did not take more than like 10 seconds for me to know that something was wrong because it opened with that framing device of Jody uh, Comer uh, doing an interview with Mike Feist totally wasted and really problematic facial hair. And they really, they <laughs> also never really explained that Mike Feist is playing the author. The exactly. No, I think they did it enough because they talked plenty of times that he's making a book okay. for yeah, they, it. They do, they do it enough. Yeah. yeah, it was... Yeah. It was the framing device was He was wasted. That is, yeah, that's yeah I, and, I, and I do like him a lot. But at the same time, if he had been like one of the biker gang members, it would have felt obvious and really kind of cliche. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the moment that Jodie Comer opened her mouth, I really... I couldn't, I, I couldn't be on board with it at all because it felt so cartoony and I, I was just shocked. I, I was shocked because I really do like her and I, I felt like there was sort of a a, a Kate Winslet murder dirter Eric <laughs> East Town kind of thing to it where it was like, I am going to use a dialect coach that, that coaches me so specifically uh, to a really particular sound mm -hmm. uh, and never leave it. And I think part of the, the issues with accents sometimes when you are, you know, obviously not from that region is that it can feel cartoony. Even if if you're from there, it doesn't. So I, I have to absolutely... Well, you were under... saying it was pretty good. Though. It's, yeah. yeah. At times, it's I think at times it's really good, but she really hams it up, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. in certain parts. And I, I think that it's in part due to her performance... Yes, yeah, the and the acting, but it's also in the fact that she is the center of this story. She and is. you have Austin Butler, who is this like beautiful, brooding, silent type. Tom Hardy, I also had issues with his accent Excellent. and his performance. I, I thought Tom Hardy was ridiculous. Yeah, Tom Hardy <laughs> did not. Absolutely embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. He goes a little squeaky. 
he, he, uh, more than a little squeaky. Yeah. His, his voice gets like Cartoon-y, like yeah. so high and, mm-hmm. and 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 like Tom and Jerry like like a little mouse. Yeah. Yeah. At I, times, I will say about Jodie Comer though, just from hearing people in line, so like patrons or our line other our line points. friends, yeah, yeah pass holders, yeah. not like, even other critics. Um, just like I will say, older people in line. They all loved Jodie Comer. Yes. She was the reason she, that they... they st- we met a couple, and they said that they would have left if it wasn't for Jodie Comer. Yeah. So. And I get that, and I totally mm-hmm. realized when I when I was putting together my, my feelings about it that I was on the outside for the most part because so many people really did like uh, Comer in this. I just was surprised, was I guess, by it. I just... Um, it didn't... It, it wasn't doing anything with with the, the the genre that it was kind of playing with you know uh, the, the the concept is Tom Hardy is sort of bored and watches uh, Marlon Brando's The Wild Ones on TV this takes place in the 60s that's a movie from the 50s and so he's like I'm inspired to make a biker gang and he does and that's it, that's it. and then <laughs> what yeah, yeah. And, and that's what yeah. I kind of alluded yeah. to in the review is that this doesn't have any sort of message to it. There's no momentum. And and what's and it's a real damn shame because you know a couple of years ago, I entered. Uh, I was at. I was lucky enough to be at a a Q and A with Nichols and with um, and um, and Ty Sheridan and Lily Reeve for the Tender Bar. And I actually talked to him about this project specifically. That he really wanted to do it. He was. It's been something that he was wanting to do for years, and. As I was watching the film, I was thinking back to that conversation. I was going, but why, Jeff? Because this doesn't feel like... It feels like he's trying to do a new form of storytelling. Maybe it's sort of populist. Maybe it's it's different than his usual form of subtlety that I think that is what makes some of his, his movies just really work for me. Like a movie like, uh, like Mud, for example, which I think is breathtaking. But I don't know. It's a, it, was a, it was a mixed bag for that one. But then we departed each other. And Sophia and Christina and myself, we saw the new Alexander Payne film, um, which was The Holdover, starring Paul G. Marty and uh, Joy Divine Randolph and Dominic Sessa. And we really liked this lovely. one. This lovely. is yeah. a lovely, yep. lovely film. I really, really liked really it. Really great return to form for Alexander Payne. Eric did not see this, so just... just just hang on. Oh, you know, it, it, in a way, a very um, a, sort of curmudgeon movie we've seen before. Yeah, uh, and Eric was very much a curmudgeon and not wanting to see the holdovers. <laughs> right, and then he would have softened to it, and exactly. then we would have a twist. and then <laughs> We all but, would have gone to Boston, and it would have been a great time. But right? the thing I really loved about it, and, and um, one of the things was that all the, the main characters, all the actors were tremendous, yeah. especially mm-hmm. Divine Joy Randolph, who was just amazing. But he also gave all... These, this little group of characters, such great evolved backstories, which I don't think you see so much in this type of movie. They all had a trajectory. They all had an ending to, you know, to what would, where they started. They all grew. Not just the Paul Giamatti curmudgeon character, which is usually what happens in this type of movie. They all surround him and make him a better person, but nothing happens to them. Mm-hmm. But this didn't happen here. And you can speak to yeah. the sort of the rest of the sort of seventies look and feel, yeah. which is amazing. That was instantly for me what sold me on this movie. Like the second it started, I love the films of Robert Altman and Hal Ashby, and I think this was certainly influenced by those. 
I love those movies also because they're a little bit sour and sweet. You have these like very endearing, emotional, important moments for the characters, but you also have a lot of humor, some darkness that's woven in, and I feel like the tone of the movie was just perfect. I really loved that. I echo you on the performances. Mm. Dominic Sessa, great breakout. Yeah, the new kid. They there. found him at the boarding school in Massachusetts. Amazing. So, yeah, I think that overall it was, I think, a big surprise for me because I was drawn to it from the trailer. I thought the trailer looked great, but it still had a lot of surprises that I didn't see coming. Yeah, and I, mean, I thought the trailer was one of those trailers where you know yeah. what it has the middle to be everything you see everything that's going to happen in the movie even yeah. the twist when he becomes he lightens up to the boy and his issues but that it, it surpassed that the emotionality of it and and the how the growing of these particularly the three characters in the center surpassed whatever seemed like a very a, a film that we'd seen 200 times before I agree. Because Eric just gave me a nice little fish. Yeah, candy. Eric's, Eric's like <laughs> eating candy while we're trying. Yeah. To I don't have anything to say about this movie, so I'm just eating candy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I agree because that was what we, you and I were talking yep. about. We were like, and I was like, oh, I, I think that there's going to be something more to this, and and usually there are. And I was the old person. No, if, if you've seen the film, Ryan, you don't need anything else. But no, because that's what typical Alexander Payne movies do. They 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 seem to have these very simplistic kind of story structures to it it's very much sideways here very, you know mm-hmm. you know even mm-hmm. hints of election in there as yep. well you know being at a school and whatnot and so it's sort of back to basics after downsizing which was such a terrible movie and i thought that this this was great getting to see giamatti everyone's like you know sophia and i have talked about this our parents can't shut the hell up about Paul Giamatti returning to the acting <laughs> sphere. Um, but I was just surprised by the tenderness and really the emotional turns that the screenplay takes us into that second half. I, you know, I think each character really gets the investment to have that evolution that is not really typical exactly. of a movie like this. Like mm-hmm. this, this is, is a crowd pleaser, it, don't get me wrong, but it's with done more it, depth. Crowd with, pleaser ex- with more depth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. More depth and uh, these three characters are these three actors mm-hmm. playing these characters together are absolutely incredible. I think the, you know, Sophia mentioned Robert Altman, the first, you know, the first couple of shots are, are literally in the snow playing repetitive songs. So it evokes McCabe, Miss Miller and, and, you know, you know, films of his, but then also how Ashby of a lonely man, you know, how he would, you know, being, being there was a movie that I thought about a lot while mm-hmm. we were watching this. Yeah. And so, yeah, just a movie that kind of surprised me how much I loved it mm. and how much I laughed, too. It's Indeed. a very yeah, funny society. movie, too. Yeah. And um, definitely a winner for, for Alexander Payne. But while we were watching The Holdovers, you were on the other side of town, Eric, because you were watching Rustin. Yes. Right? And, and, and so that everybody knows, because this is such a very short festival and this was an extra day than it normally is, uh, and there are so many world premieres, and most of what we're going to be talking about today are things world that premieres, world yeah. premiered here, is that everything is scheduled up against each other, so you've got four world premieres all happening at the same time in, in four different places. So you really have to make some very serious choices uh, about what you're going to watch and when you're going to watch and how, how to manage your time. And so I did prioritize uh, Rustin, 
first, even more than the movie that is my favorite movie of the year uh, that I also saw here. Um, and it was, it was largely because it's an important story that I had been waiting to watch for a very, very, very long time. And, and that is a fire Rustin, who was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s closest confidants uh, and the orchestrator of the March on Washington, which just celebrated its 60th anniversary. So he is one of the many unsung, unheralded, and undocumented LGBTQ uh, civil rights activists, or just you know any person in history that has had a huge impact. And so it was a story that I really, really was looking forward to and wanted to see. And it's from George Wolfe, who did Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I think is good. Um, I think he's a better stage director and even television movie director than a film director. I think he steps up enormously with Rustin. It feels very cinematic. It looks very cinematic, even though so much of it takes place in rooms, trying to argue and talk about how to get this uh, march off the ground and on the ground. And I, I thought it was actually quite incredible. And Coleman Domingo, who plays Rustin, this is, he is a legend and a veteran, yet this is his first lead role in a major film, which is insane. And it comes from Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company that they have housed at Netflix. And I, I think this is such a perfect choice for them. I think Domingo is amazing. I think the entire cast is Glenn Turman, absolutely on fire. Um, I, I was incredibly moved, really pleased, and I, I, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I really loved Domingo as well. I thought he was the real reason to see the film, and also I think the thing that separates this film from Ma Rainey, this for me is is having someone like Dustin Lance Black as a screenwriter here, having someone that has a cinematic lens um, to help Wolf in his direction. And it, you know, it's it's not a film that's that we haven't seen a kind of biopic like this before, but that lead performance really just carries it over. I know you saw it. Yeah, I saw it. And, well, you both saw it. Yeah, yeah, I think with Rustin, I went into it with fairly low expectations because we get so many biopics every single year and we sort of expect, you know, a Wikipedia movie film, you know, a Wikipedia entry or Cradle to Grave, something like that that's very standard. And I think that for Rustin, while the camera work and the direction, I didn't find that to be particularly inventive, I think that it is still a step above a lot of those biopics that we get year after year. And that is because of Coleman Domingo's performance, I think. Yeah. Coleman Domingo was just amazing to me. He was, and this is one of the many where I cried, <laughs> but I'm not going to say where at the end, but there's a couple... Um, 15 minutes at the end that really got me. But I want to say something about the direction and, and what I thought was really 
beautiful about it was that there's these very serious talking scenes around the table that are very gripping and 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 they speak to the now where we are today um what people are discussing and what's going on and what's happening but then when they're preparing when all these volunteers are preparing for this big day he staged it like a musical i don't know if you felt mm -hmm. that yeah. but yeah. they're running from table to table three three faces will show up bum, 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 at the same time in a doorway and i and you suddenly got this rush of energy which in that type of talking around tables biopicy very serious we have to set up this march was to me a very um, it lightened something for me that I needed in, in, in contrast to what was, what's going on. No, I totally agree. I love that. I didn't think about that, actually. I didn't think about it in terms of, of like, putting on a musical, and that makes, I, I, I'm, like, completely mm -hmm. changed in yeah. just thinking about well, that. But you liked it, right? I mean, no, wasn't that, it gorgeous? Yeah. Sense. I thought mm -hmm. it was, it g gave it an energy that you need in these type of, that you can go in such a serious direction in this type of biopic that we've seen 200 times, that to me, it brought up this enthusiasm that these group of people had when they had, to, you had to have this to be able to get through what they were getting through, putting this together. You're absolutely right, because that, that sort of style mimics the, the origin of this to begin with, which is a scene where they're writing out all the different, ideas as a group as a team and also like together. a song number yeah i'm like, gonna write it there i'm gonna write yeah, it this there. lyrics mine and exactly put this in there and and what I about this it, it felt it's a collaborative process i love that you know and uh, and yeah. i think that's george seawolf i think yeah dustin lance mike mm -hmm. really helped put it together but that i think was all him yeah in terms sure. of direction yeah. i think there's something just also kind of wonderfully unique about the fact that Bayard Rustin was a community organizer. That was the, his beginnings. Obama began his career as a community organizer. Right. Having mm -hmm. him introduce the film uh, on on video, video and and be an executive producer on it is such a neat kind of full circle moment about possibilities and origins and what you can do despite every possible thing being in your way. And for Rustin and his team uh, of amazing uh, volunteers and, and people was insurmountable until it wasn't. And that's, that's the greatness of, of, of the story. I also think it's really important that three gay men are Truly, the ones that are responsible for telling this story. And Julian Breeze, just to be yes, sure, the, yes. the story and the and the the, the yes. co-screenwriter Julian Breeze. Yes, right. But you know, Wolf and, and Lance Black, and then Domingo, um, who is I can't over, I can't overstate this enough how wonderful he is in this movie, and it's so great for him to finally have this moment. And from the moment he the camera zooms in on him, the movie says it's it's great. Um, then that later that night, speaking of that favorite movie, I think Eric's alluding to. We all saw Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. That's then, not the one you're alluding well, to. You're no, even no, though the, even, that's the one that I think we've been talking about the most. Even though Saltburn is a eureka moment yeah, in my movie going life. I thought that it was, uh, but I think I think I, well, I definitely know what the other one is now. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely the one that this group here has been talking about the most. And uh, I'm gonna some of us saw it twice. Some of us saw it twice. <laughs> and I'm speaking, of course, about Christina and Sophia, who Sophia wrote 
the review that's up on the on the Great website review. right now, and um, and we've been kind of obsessing about it. And you want to tell everybody why we're obsessing about it? Because oh my god, at least you and I, we've been on the record as stating that we are we are not as big of fans as Promising Young Woman. So mm-hmm. we kind of went in this with with not as high as expectations as a lot of other people, but you know. What did, why did you love it, though? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where really to begin with Saltburn yeah. and why we've talked about it so much and why I loved it so much. But Begin with the armpit. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> it is the way that... So I think just to start, this yeah. movie is Emerald Fennell's follow-up to Promising Young Woman, like you said. But I think that Prom- Promising Young Woman was rooted in controversy before you really even saw it because it was about you know, sexual assault and the Me Too movement. And it was really oriented in a very, I think, an unreal place that became very real in the movie. And a lot of people had trouble with some of the decisions that Fennell made. This movie was set, I think, in a perfect place for her. It is really in her sweet spot. So it's about this boy named Oliver Quick, played by Barry Keoghan in... The most, one of the most fearless performances of the year. We're going to talk about another one from a movie soon that I think fits in that category too. But he goes to Oxford. He's an outsider. He's smarter than everyone else. He's, you know, he's he's a loner, and all of the rich kids are, you know, beautiful, and they're hanging out without him. And one of those kids is Jacob Alordi. He plays Felix Catton, and he and his family are wealthy like uber wealthy like Downton Abbey wealthy and they have an estate called Saltburn which is where the title comes from and the movie is just this so Oliver ends up going to Saltburn for the summer he kind of wiggles his way in with Felix and his crowd and not just wiggles he gets Felix sympathies well yes totally gets his sympathies yeah and I think that the movie itself is just this rowdy horny debaucherous ride and I think it plays so well with just gothic themes and she really blends the old and the new the historic and the modern so well and you will just be shocked by so many images in this movie and it's not shock you know with just for shock's sake or without substance I really think that everything that she does in this movie has a purpose and is really smart and yeah I loved it so much I saw it twice and I can't wait to see it again and to go with my friends to see it because it is just a wild romp, truly. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But I, and I just want to say, of all, of all the plethora of movies we've seen about the very, very uber-rich, this is just such a great one. And mm-hmm. that's for that, I want to mention um, the parents, the, the owners of Saltburn, played by Richard E. Grant and Rosamund Pike, which are like, my favorite rich parents ever. Rosamund oh Pike's delivery um, and her um, view on life. I don't want to spoil anything by giving yeah, away any of the things she said. Yeah. But but those two, their interactions and, and, and the bubble that they're living in um, is just absolutely hilarious. Sad, but absolutely hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that um, Emerald Fennell has a way of being so subtle in her in what she's attacking and she does it with humor and she does it um 
in such a brilliant way that at the end you're, you have you spend so much time thinking about what what is she saying and what does she want to do with this that it just gives you hours and hours of food for thought while at the same time you had such a great time at the movies what do you think Oh, I love it. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I came in already. <gasps> the M word. No. You might hear that more than a couple of times. Me too. On this I'll, be... <laughs> I'll say I, it at least once. I came in already being a really huge fan of Promising Young Woman all the way from beginning to end. But I think maybe one of the things that befell the film and 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 Fennell was being a completely contemporary film and wanting to make a very strong but satirical comment on Me Too and on on sexual assault, it didn't sit well with a lot of people and totally wasn't, didn't work and I totally get that. And I think with Saltburn, putting the action in 2006, Mm -hmm. uh, which chronologically for her she would be about the age of, of the people involved or really really close I think it I think she hit her sweet spot of not only understanding the era but also infusing all of the things that she loves gothic literature and everything that that she's interested in already and I think the confluence of all of that of those things made for much better film than Promising Young Woman. I think it. I think it is absolutely the success of that because it felt more, more natural, I guess, for her. Yeah. And between the soundtrack, which is extraordinary, uh, to every single performance mm. in this, whether it was yes, the parents, uh, or the absolutely psych. Butler Duncan (laughs) who I just you just when you see him you will love and be terrified by him but this is to Christina's comment earlier about sex is back (laughs) this movie is diabolically sexy so sexy Uh, it is yeah (laughs) between the actual sex that's in the movie and just the mere existence of Jacob Alordi rolling around in <laughs> fields uh, in sequences that feel like uh, perfume ads. It is incredibly voyeuristic and sun-drenched and just absolutely gorgeous. It's not the sex that's sexy in this. It's never it's, the sex yeah, that's sexy. But it's it's everything, everything around else. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> everything. It's sweaty and it's. So <laughs> um, I think that the first two acts of Promising Young Woman is is really great film, and I and I've said that I think it, it does, like you're mentioning, Eric. I think it crumbles because I do think that that is such a tight rope for her, and anyone really to sort of walk on, and to make a, a satire in the Me Too era, and we're, you know, and you can pick it apart and whatnot. It's it's very tough. I think that this is like. Sophia, you're saying she's very comfortable in this. This is this is a, a society of people that she knows mm-hmm. from her from her life, yeah. And she is able to point a finger at them and do such a fantastic job of tearing them down. 
Um, I'm not a fan of like Adam McKay films or a movie like Triangle of Sadness last year. The sort of mold of like what Christina was saying of the eat the rich. Yes. But this is this is eating them and spitting them out and such a mm-hmm. beautiful way of doing it. I think, you know, a, a lot will be said about, you know, the sort Can of Can I controversial- say something about yeah, 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 Emerald yeah. and the, the thing about how Emerald portrays the rich is that she has that British way of doing it is that she actually thinks they're really funny. Yeah. And she actually mm-hmm. knows that in their weird bubble, they are very learned and mm-hmm. they have, they can speak very well. And, and that's something that she uses in, and, and she, you know, feeds off British humor. She talked a lot in the Q and A about, you know, Downton Abbey and references that she's all taken from all over them. I think she really knows that type and she played again. She was in the Crown. I mean, she knows this world so well, and she has some kind of weird love for the aristocrats of England. You, you cannot, you cannot make a good satire if you don't actually exactly. enjoy. Exactly. That's my point. That's my point. And, and she all, knows that. But also, yep. Too, yep. that's the thing about promising a woman is that's such an American film and. and She's very British. Mm-hmm. Lots of so dissing that, about this movie that I like. Are we going no, there? I, 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 I love this I, movie. I will reiterate, I yeah. am 100% promising young woman yeah. all the way through to the very end. And that no. we saw years ago, so uh, let's continue but, but, on. No, but no, I, I think that this is this is almost, it's like a three billboards and sort of, uh, of an assurance sort of thing where, oh, wow. so, where someone is knows the environment that they're in and much more comfortable mm-hmm. than actually going outside the box of the, of the yes, comfort zone. Got that's it. true. And so, and so that's what, and with that, then they're able to create something that I think is truly special and transcendent with performances that are out of this world. I mean, Jacob Elordi mm-hmm. has never been any better. Barry Keoghan coming off of an Oscar nomination, mm-hmm. uh, uh, delivering probably the best performance of his career, this twisted Oliver Quick, which is a, wonderful name I mean um, this is the best for me that Rosamund Pike has ever done oh, yes. and I love Gone, Gone Girl. Girl love I mean, Gone Girl but she is wicked as Elspeth Richard this ice Graham queen too oh. as well I mean even Carrie Mulligan's two scenes which are absolutely <laughs> in, spectacular insanely hysterical and oh, it's yeah. it from all the needle drops production design all of it mm-hmm. it's, it's it's such a level up for her I wish and this it, movie was coming out before Halloween because the gays oh, would absolutely have Carrie Mulligan costumes. Oh, that costume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Can't wait for everyone to see it. We're not going to talk really about spoilers a lot for it because mm-hmm. there's a But lot since of Sophia and I saw it again, and then can we talk about it again? <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Okay. <laughs> it's like, nice try. Read my review, though. Yeah, if you want uh, to yes, more. great. But yeah. we're going to dive into something else if you want oh, to start no. talking about it, Christina. And that is, we're going to talk about Nyad. Which oh. is the, la- the the next one that we all saw together. So I'm giving this to Sophia to <laughs> first because <laughs> I really want to hear that. We're, we're in the Shesha Shallow now. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're off the deep end. So you want to talk about bending diving? Do you want to talk about diet? Because I think we're all yeah. You're we're- all pointing to me. That's fine. I wrote the review for Nyad, and Nyad is a biopic about Diana Nyad, who's a very controversial figure. She's a marathon swimmer who swam from Cuba to Florida at the age of 64, played by Annette Bening. And this movie documents that journey for her. It does not touch on those controversies, though, that I'm alluding to, which are basically that in the swimming world, she's been accused of cheating and of embellishing a lot of her records and her accomplishments. and Including the events in the film. Correct. Yes, the events in the film, right. So the I think that here... 
the filmmakers are far more interested in um, attacking, you know, the the logistics of the race and of her accomplishment, and not so much in digging into who she is as a character. And I think, for me, that's why the film really fell apart. It really was the script trying to bite off way more than it can chew, could chew, and not really getting into the meat of this person. And at times, it's rather silly, I will say unintentionally we had some moments of unintentional comedy mm. throughout that we were laughing quite a bit at yeah. um we but were I, laughing at quite a bit still after seeing, after yeah. seeing it um but i think you know people will be tempted to call this you know a crowd pleaser something that's very heartwarming and i i think that's fine but for me i expect a little bit more out of my sports stories my sports movies that's a genre i really love and can be really moved by and I was really moved by the performances, specifically Jodie Foster's. So Jodie Foster plays Bonnie Stoll, who um, is Diana's like lifelong best friend, practically. And um, she becomes her swim coach. And I think that Jodie Foster, I mean, she's just such a presence in the industry and on screen. She has this particular style of leadership and athleticism that comes through. But she is the heart of the film. Her role is underwritten. Right, and she severely, so. severely underwritten. But she, I think, makes the most of it and comes away for me stealing the movie. I loved her in it. I thought she was fabulous. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I agree, and and but like we were talking about with the holdovers and with Saltburn, the how the supporting characters are so developed and they have a an arc. Um, it really frustrated me so much that Jodie Foster and Bonnie, such a huge character in her life, for I mean, she helped according to this film at least her accomplish this very this mission five times of, of trying to swim from Cuba to, to Florida and we have we know nothing about her we know mm-hmm. nothing about what she actually does she's not she wasn't officially her trainer um, and then I felt that this this was the type of biopic where all the where you're seeing flashbacks from her youth in the most conventional most biopicky way absolutely imaginable I'm not going to give anything away but that certain things are almost became laughable I'm afraid mm-hmm. but and I also but then I also want to mention Annette Benning's also great yeah. and she's really giving it her all and she's really um, a force in this in in this film and the, so the two of them are kind of saving it yeah. for me yeah. Eric did you like it <laughs> or did you hate it I didn't, I didn't hate it, but I gave it the same score as the bike riders, but I definitely didn't like it. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about this and Rustin at the same time. These are both Netflix films. Uh, these are both world premieres here. They are both biopics. Yeah. And they, they both do take a relatively traditional uh, 
approach to to the biopic yet I, I very clearly Rustin is the more successful of the two I was really intrigued from the beginning because this is the narrative feature debut from Elizabeth Chai Besserheli and Jimmy Chin who make incredible documentaries like Free Solo and The Rescue about very real and uh, extreme personalities in the sports world uh, who literally risk their lives for their sport. So the idea of them directing this makes perfect sense and it yeah. all kind of kind of should have really been there. But right from the beginning, literally the opening uh, scenes in the movie are the the pre-recorded uh, video that we already have know and, and see of, of Diane Nyad. So instead of introducing us to Nyad, aka Water Nymph, um, <laughs> in the form of Annette Benning, we're already introduced to Nyad, the real person, and so getting us into it, the feature film takes time and mm -hmm. and I really Strange think it was choice. a huge detriment yeah. To, yeah. to do that because we spend quite a lot of time with uh, historical footage before we get into the actual film um, I it seems it's almost like it itched for these documentarians to make a documentary yeah. <laughs> it was definitely yeah. that it was also felt like second guessing yeah. themselves and, and just kind of a little nervous as the first time mm -hmm. Uh, I do think Benning is fantastic, although I think anyone that sees this will see a lot of the kids are all right in this performance. It's very, very similar. Uh, I think Jodie Foster, I agree with Sophia, I think she is absolutely the best part of it. She's also very Jodie Foster in this, mm -hmm. yeah. but she's also tan and buff and Six pack. Fully lesbian and just really out there. Pounding those Diet Cokes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Diet Cokes and poop bags from Petco. I mean, <laughs> you know what's going on here. Uh, she's fantastic. I think she's really good. I think she has moments that, despite the incredibly clunky bad script, uh, that she tries to rise above, but it's really hard to rise above a bad script. And so the, the big heavy moments between like Bending and, and Foster in this are definitely downgraded by the fact that their dialogue is so bad and, and just kind of perfunctory, but they are both really fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Um, the performances here are really good. I think Jodie Foster is fantastic, but she's completely underwritten. Mm -hmm. um, I was, we're, we've been asking a lot of questions this weekend of, of what her job really is. Because at one point she yells. She's like, I have clients. That's and they're like, what, what, what the hell are you talking about? Really? Lady? You had a job? Yeah. And there's a lot of things that I think if the script was in the hands of a better screenwriter, there would have been a lot of fleshing out. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been interesting to explore not the current uh, controversies that Nyad has because those are set different from the era in which the film is yeah. printed. But it definitely... To not address at all, at any point by the directors pre or post the screening or in the film, that this 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 achievement is in massive questioning by the sports community, and that she is a massive controversial figure within her sport, um, even before any of her comments uh, of late. So, I, I think that that is a little bit of hand holding 
And we were talking about it in comparison to something like King Richard, um, which is a, which is a sports biopic that's come out recently that will have a big awards contender for an actor. But the, the problem with that film is, is, or not the problem with that film, is that that does actually question Richard Williams, I think, a lot in that, especially the Algernon Ellis character. In this one, I think that Jodie Foster's character, they're all at, they're all at Nyad's sort of command, mm -hmm. and they're not really fleshed out, and they're not given enough agency to really understand who they are, and she doesn't come off at all as, as you know, grateful for all the work that they put in. She's, uh, some would call her selfish. I think, you know, most athletes have a lot of selfishness in there, but I think that this one really does. Um, and I don't even think that's a big issue because they don't have any problem presenting her as very prickly and all of the elements of her personality that are known, which are very difficult to work with and all of yeah. that, which is great because obviously what is the point of making a movie about somebody that's easy to get along with? There's no dr narrative dramatic curve there whatsoever. So they're not afraid of that, but they're certainly afraid of virtually anything, anything else. else. Yeah. But also, I mean, movies embellish the truth a lot to make these to make it's also it also comes from her own autobiography and she is an integral yeah. part of the movie so mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, there yeah, you go. I know yeah. I understand that but at the same token don't you, you've got you got to be able to change it up you got to be able to make it not as bland as it come comes out to be and but Foster's good and there's some underwater sequences that are truly one of the funniest and stupidest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my goddamn life and um, if you the like the Little Mermaid, comment. you're gonna love, love this one of the sequences in Nyad. You yes. know what we needed though? Jodie Foster and Annette Benning singing the scuttlebutt. Clearly. Yeah. Yep. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. Um, moving on, Eric's favorite film of the of the festival. I want to talk about it. This was probably um, we talked about this as a group. Maybe probably one of the best days we've ever had movie going watching, and we watched a lot of these ever. films together. Um, but I want to talk about this one first. Which is all the strangers, Eric. Yeah, I'm pretty moved by it. Not yeah. just because Paul Mescal's man was in it, but um, but what did you love about all the strangers? What premiere here at Target? I mean, again, you, you can't get more Eric coded than an Andrew Hay movie that stars uh, Paul Mescal, <laughs> Andrew Scott, Jamie Bell, and Claire Foy to a lesser extent. But still, I mean, that's, that's, that's... Sorry, Claire Foy. That's me. Oh, and it's gay. And I'm like, uh, what could I possibly, you and know... it's got the 80s. ...not like about this. Britpop. So, yeah, so, you know, you, you, you have to enter something going, you know, obviously I'm, I feel preordained that I'm going to like it. And there's nothing I like more than when something is able to so far exceed hopes and expectations and my own uh, bias toward probably liking it and 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 this did this in a way that was truly unexpected um it is the story of a late 40s single gay man in london uh late 80s and he's trying to write this script that details his working class parents. He's, he's, you know, very, very writerly, as, as you were saying earlier, the, the struggles and difficulties that writers are, are writing themselves into movies right now. Uh, and he's having an incredibly difficult time. He can barely get past the, 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 the intro of the, the script itself. And he's visited by this neighbor in his 
apartment complex, which seems very barren and very few people living in there. And it's Paul Mescal, and he has this bottle of Japanese whiskey, and he is drunk out of his mind. And they had sort of seen each other before uh, just through windows. And Mescal is very drunk, very horny, very seductive, oh. and, and, and wants to enter the apartment and enter Scott. And... Scott is kind of like, I'm, I want to do this. You can see that he wants to. And he's like, no, I can't really do this. And the, the crux of the, of the story is really him relitigating his past and his parents who died in a car accident when he was 12 years old. And it is not really spoilers to explain that this is a ghost story where he revisits his hometown and his home where he grew up, where his parents still are in a spiritual form. And, I mean, obviously, being gay and growing up in the 80s and exactly everything that this movie takes place in, I, I, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be drawn to it. But... I was not really prepared for how existential the the exploration of what it was like growing up at that time, the the need for a really specific time of parental affirmation, as well as parents that realize that they did not give that affirmation and one of the great things the movie does is that it's allowing them to do that in this sort of afterworld and it's not a supernatural film in any way everything that happens in this sort of ghost-like way is is very direct um and it doesn't it doesn't feel i don't know it's not sci-fi it's not anything like that um, and I know I'm, I'm going very long on this. Uh, I just, um, I think it understands, understood what it was like to be single and gay in the 80s. And anything that takes place in any period that's not now is always speaking to now. Nothing is ever completely in the bubble of the time period that it's talking about. So you, you're, you're, you have to be able to watch, you know, a movie that takes place in 87 with a lens of 2023. Uh, and, and I think it still was trying to, is trying to speak to fear and love and, and how to love and how to let go of things. And I, 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 I just think it's one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's really great. Um, moved us all the tears. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the best needle drop endings I've seen in quite some time. Um, Mescal and Scott are, are tremendous, but I think I know you're. I know. I, I know you're. I haven't even, even really talked about how great Mescal is in this, but he is yeah. phenomenal. Scott, the best thing he has ever done. Claire Foy, maybe my favorite thing that I've ever seen yeah. her in. Mm-hmm. And Bell. Uh, Jamie Bell, I will always love until the end of days. Now, this movie devastated me. It's my favorite of 
this weekend. Um, and I'm not coming from it from the same direction that Eric's coming. I, it, it, it could have been a waste of just a big long metaphor, a metaphor for what you should have, your parents should have told you, a metaphor for what love is. But in what you were saying so eloquently before, in this straightforwardness of the movie, that it's just happening, it's not any woo ghostly mm -hmm. type of thing, even though it is a ghost story. The, the reality of the relationships between these people was so strong for me that I immediately, between my tears, started texting important people in my life to make sure I had said this and that. It makes me want to cry <laughs> thinking about it now. We had the same... Both, both Christina yeah. and I, right after the films, texted our, our son okay. like immediately. And, right. it was, it was and without so knowing, visceral. we looked at each other. And, 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 and the music, which is music from... We're from the same era. Frankie just goes to Hollywood. Hollywood. Oh my the God. The House Martins. The, all kinds of things that were... Um, and these central performances, the four of them were so natural and so strong and and Andrew Scott is in so much pain that somehow you're you're living it with him but you're crying I mean, it's not like you're crying just of desperate sadness you're yeah. also crying that he's actually he's actually um, closing several circles yeah. in his life mm -hmm. that that's what really moved me at the end and it wasn't people say oh it's such a sad depressing it wasn't for me he closed every circle that was open when we started the movie in a way that i don't even know how andrea did that no i think it's i a, still can't figure I think it it's out it's a movie about healing yes completely 100 percent, and reckoning with with yourself in the past and even the present and there's Imagine to be able to do that. Imagine to be able to reckon with a past that seems that's over. Yeah. People mm -hmm. are dead. This it's, this is years of, and and you you do that. And yeah. and that to me was just oh, you don't get that chance. That's why yeah. we texted yeah. ourselves. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the central premise of the movie really is just that idea of like what if you could go back in time and say the things that you wish you could say to people or have the conversations that you were never able to have. And I can't believe he pulled it off in the way that he did. And I think it is because of what you were saying, right? It's not a supernatural film. The ghosts are, they look like people. They look like his parents when they died at that age. And they that makes it grounded in reality, which makes the relationships all the more real. And yes, bring tissues for sure. Oh, I sobbed. We were the wrecks. The <laughs> I think a movie that we have to talk about um, here was a can title, but this is a movie that definitely we could provide tissues for was um, Jonathan Glacier's The Zone of Interest, um, which was my favorite film at the festival. Um, it might be masterpiece. My new, it might be mm -hmm. my new favorite film of the year. Uh, it's it's, big. it's it, it, an extraordinary film about this family that are living a, essentially a dream life, a, a life that they dreamed of. They literally say that in the film. Um, and the house and the garden are outside of Auschwitz. And he is the, the, the head commandant of it. Um, I think I've been a massive Jonathan Glazer fan for years. I've been waiting for this movie for such a long time. I saw the reaction in a can. And, man, I, it, it's hard to not even yeah. talk about it without trying to get emotional. It, it's such a... Beautiful, heartbreaking uh, Holocaust drama. Mm 
mm-hmm. and it's impeccably directed. This is an impeccably directed film. It is his movie through and through. These performances are extraordinary. The direction, though, is out of control. The, the, we talked about it a lot, and I think Sophia heard Glazer talk about mm-hmm. the, the multi-camera, Big Brother-esque sort of setups that he has throughout this house to make it so vast. Um, and it really is, weirdly enough, another film this year about someone that is grappling with this dangerous... Uh, job that they have it's, it's very much I was thinking a lot about how you know we were Christina and I were talking about it being a little bit of almost a, a, a call and response to Oppenheimer in a lot of ways and especially guilt, the guilt stuff, and morality especially I think the last five minutes of the film are, are, are doing that but I think Glazer's I would say his film is a lot more interesting um, than, than Nolan's as much as mm-hmm. I love that film this movie is this movie is deconstructing the Holocaust drama that we know. And um, Eric, Eric and I and Sophia, we recently did uh, a 1993 retrospective, and we watched this list. And I can say this without uh, any hesitation: this movie makes that movie look lesser because this is a this is a this isn't showing; it's listening. And it's reacting, and it's making you, as the audience, imagine the atrocities that are happening over the wall. Well, what you Eric never, and I you never talking, get over no. the wall. What Eric and, and I were talking about is that you ha- you come to this movie with the context already in you. Yes, mm-hmm. you come you come knowing what's on the other side of the wall that we never get to see, um, and what you're watching is a family doing normal things, struggling with. Um, a transfer, the wife doesn't want to move, he has to move, and all the while you know what job he has, what's going on on the other side of the wall, that the mother's building this garden to sort of, even though she knows what's happening, to make her life beautiful, but knowing the complicity of, of silence, it just, it really, really got me. I was thinking about, we talked about that just a while ago today, um, the feelings that one has today about what we know and what we're doing and not doing and what's happening all over the world and the rise of right wing and fascism. Um, it was absolutely one of the most powerful movies I've seen. Yeah. It's my favorite movie of the year so far, period. I think that what Jonathan Glazer does also is the greatest achievement in directing that we have this year. And I think it's yeah, it's it's hard because I think that Holocaust movies, right, as this subgenre, we're so familiar with what that looks like and what that means. And typically it means seeing horrifying images. And here what Glazer does is he makes two films essentially that are running at the same time in this one film and it's one is this anthropological study of the Haas family in this beautiful, bright house outside of those walls and then the other film is the film that we hear and those are all of the sounds that are coming from Auschwitz and the sound in this movie it is tremendous work it is horrifying there are sounds that will not escape your brain after you watch this there's a particular scream that I can still hear if I think about it contrasted to a picture of a beautiful flower exactly yeah and Again, like you were saying, right, that those sounds are aided by images that are already in our heads. And 
the, his his command over the camera and every every single shot of this movie and exactly what he's he's trying to accomplish here. It's it's to make our, you know we're supposed to watch this movie and interrogate our place in the world and how we feel about our actions and our right complacency or how complicit we can be. And yeah, I think it's it's a profound work and it has the potential of being the definitive Holocaust film. Period. Yeah, it is. Um, it is a terrifying movie. Yes. And mm-hmm. Can't understate that. The, yeah. Well, the, the main reason for me that it is is that it does what it, what a really great film can do, and that is take what is a seemingly ordinary story and placing it into an extraordinary situation. Mm-hmm. And this is, at its core, it's not actually a Holocaust film. At its core, it is a family drama, mm-hmm. like Christina said, about a man who wants to rise up in his company. Uh, the movie is filled with board meetings about uh, generals congratulating uh, men for beating their their labor Holes. totals and what those labor totals are are bodies mm-hmm. uh, and then Sandra Huller absolutely terrifyingly mm-hmm. chilling in this mm-hmm. um, as a housewife who is confronted with possibly having to move after creating this wonderful home you can put a story like that in almost any genre of film. Putting it into something like this is so incredibly challenging for the audience because unlike most Holocaust movies which focus on the perpetrators, you're not going to relate to what they're doing. You're going to be horrified by what they're doing because you have never experienced anything like that. What this family is experiencing is a very general thing so you're really forced to not necessarily sympathize but to absolutely relate to the exact situation mm-hmm. which makes you very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I think I think if 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 you're if you're gonna push back on the movie I think that might be an undercurrent of why I'm not saying that you know you have a wrong opinion for not liking something but maybe the reason why is because you are really being forced to analyze and challenge something in yourself that you don't think you or don't think you ever would have had to mm-hmm. but aside from that just as a film and glazer as a filmmaker it's an extraordinary piece of work I don't know how he keeps getting better. And it's, this has it's, been so, yeah. it's so many, it's what, almost 10 years since he's made a film mm-hmm. under the skin? And we get this. This is very much reminiscence of last year where we spent how many years waiting for Todd Field to return? Mm-hmm. But Tar, and we get these cold, complicated masterpieces. I will use the M word now. Because mm. I think that this yes, movie is absolutely, absolutely is, a masterpiece. Is, is, yeah. An undoubtable masterpiece. I mean, like, I, I was sitting there crying, not at the images themselves, like you're talking about, Eric, but at the idea of what is going on, the sound. The, the, there's a, a flower image that turns the screen bright red. You know exactly what that means. The, the ending is, last five minutes, is extraordinary work. Extraordinary work. And complicated. And 
yeah, I just, I, I, I haven't been able to get it out of my head. I don't know how anyone I can was able to get it out of their head either. Um, you know, it was the runner-up for, for uh, the Palme d'Or that was... Uh, and was the performances, both of them, the couple, um, Sandra Hüller and Christian Friedel, right? Yes. They are absolutely chilling and perfect, and every move they make just is amazing. Very and two incredible performances by Sandra Hüller at this year that just are unbelievable. Yeah, she's in Anatomy of a Fall as well. Yeah, she's incredible in Anatomy of a Fall. She's incredible in this. Very Lady Macbeth almost. I'm, I'm all, yeah, I'm also such a big proponent of knowing how to end your film. Oh, yeah. A really good ending will absolutely kind of like nail it for me. Um, all of Us Strangers has oh. one of the most breathtaking final shots of anything ever. The final moments in Zone of Interest, again, are just, I, I feel like this year is working on a different level mm-hmm. of mastery. Left me numb. Mm-hmm. I had to go walk. Like I had to walk. I, mean, I couldn't eat right. all I day. Was, I was in the bathroom all, sobbing. That's yeah, where it was, it it's, <laughs> But not, it's not on like a, like a, you know bad way it's just like no, it, it's, you have to this is it's sitting to, with a profound right. piece of yeah. art that it, it, it makes challenges you feel that you. Way. Mm-hmm. so if you're out there and want to challenge yourself watch the damn zone of interest it's wonderful yes and we should kind of be telling people you know as, as much as we can when things are coming out mm-hmm. uh, uh, strangers is searchlight pictures it's out in december so, uh zone of interest is 824 it's November, December as well. Yeah, I mean a lot of what we're, we're talking mm-hmm. about it's, today it's will, November, will be October, November, December. Kind mm-hmm. of yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, one big film, and then we'll sort of wrap, start wrapping this up. And that's uh, the trip. The big tributes of the weekend was for Yorgos Lanthimos, his latest film, um, Poor Things. He flew all the way to Venice just to come see us, uh, and then the poor man looked jet lag. Um, but his movie is. More fabulous sex. More, yeah. More fabulous sex. Yes. Christina's like, please, all the sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been interesting, the sort of conversation around sex for that film or sex for any of these films. Um, maybe people should go and touch grass. But other than that... Or ass. It's, or ass. It's not shocking. <laughs> you know. But, but um, I think that this is another wonderful film in collaboration with not only just Emma Stone, but Tony McNamara... That script for Poor Things is out of control. The production design, the costumes, the makeup mm-hmm. on Willem Dafoe, uh, oh. Emma Stone's maybe her best performance. Oh, no, it, it is. is. It, it is. When I mentioned that Barry Keoghan gave a fearless performance and there was one other we would talk about, it was Emma Stone's in Poor Things. Well, I think there's also another fearless performance in this too and that's Mark Ruffalo I oh. think he's, oh, he's so good absolutely he's great. He's great. fantastic in this movie yeah. um, we'll talk a little bit about what how it's about so I mean like, yeah so it's essentially a, a, a sort of Frankenstein's take monster sort of take on that and it's about um, this this kind of crazy scientist played by Willem Dafoe and he finds this body um, and he recreates it and puts a, a the brain of a child inside of it. Her own child. Her own, Her own baby child. that she's carrying. And, and essentially raises it as... Conservatives are going to love it. It's so <laughs> <a> life. 
Oh my god. And as and as she she progresses, until, as until. she progresses and grows older, she goes on journeys, and it's it's mm-hmm. it's very much an odyssey at that point. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 an odyssey, film. and also about what women yes. go through and how um, about being controlled first being made as a woman then being controlled and then confronting questions of why can't i do that and pleasure and what's wrong with feeling mm-hmm. pleasure and 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 when she starts to read how men feel about what that happens she Brian goes through yes yeah, ownership and she goes through all these steps which I have to say, this movie is, if the other ones we were talking about crying, it's, this is hilarious. Is I think so I funny. cried, I think oh I laughed God. every five minutes in this, in this journey because the writing is so, abs- I mean, the dialogue is so absurd and you're realizing these things like, yeah, why are women going through this? What's happening here? And, and, and Mark Ruffalo is hysterically funny. Yes. Oh yeah. One of his best things ever, I have to say. I think and so. And all too. this in a package of absolutely beautiful set design, Victorian, you know, steampunkish, gorgeous costumes, mm-hmm. um, sweeping, uh, magical. I mean, there's like trams flying in the air. I mean, it's not realistic. It's just gorgeous. It's really amazing. It's so imaginative. <gasps> oh yeah. Especially for Eurovis doll. Mm. And I'm I'm really hot and cold on Lanthimos, but I loved this. I thought it was if you think maybe that and I loved Barbie, but if you think Barbie was maybe a bit general at times <laughs> and you wanted it to be a bit sharper, um and you're looking maybe for more not necessarily in that more movie, sex. but just in general, Sorry, something okay. raunchier. <laughs> Like this, this fits that totally. I think it is a feminist masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I think in what it's saying about women and our like bodily autonomy, what we have and what we don't, how men want to control that in any way that they can. And in, you know, a woman's journey with her sexuality, I found it like very hilarious and empowering mm-hmm. as she's kind of discovering how sex makes her feel. Yeah. It's just, I think the tone again is just, in, in a similar way to Saltburn, I think the tone is just like spot on with this one. It's consistent throughout. Consistent and yeah, Emma Stone, I can't sing her praises enough. She's, it's just I yeah. just miss her so much. It, she's such a wonderful performance and screen presence, and it mm-hmm. seems like she has found her director now that she wants to work to. She's already, mm-hmm. I believe, on her next project, already done her fifth project. I, was, was, yeah, it was announced there. today that yeah, they are. They had a. They've had a secret project and it's done. Yeah, Their fifth and, together, counting several fit, short movies. They fit perfectly together, and 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 I. I mean, I love the favorite, but this is, this is taking it to like the next level. It's mm-hmm. almost like Saltburn. You just you see one and then you. This is the step up for it. I think one of the most extraordinary things about Stone in this is not simply the uh, unprecedented level of nudity and sex that she has in the film, which is substantial, uh, but it is the actual performance itself because she does go from quite literally the mind of a baby who has to learn everything from walking to talking to anything and everything and uh, sort of like I said just a minute ago no movie exists in a period without speaking to its current year and this does as well like you said Sophie whether it's body autonomy Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) there is a conversation about female circumcision that happens in the film to quell sexual desire that you cannot 
you cannot make a, almost a single moment in this film not relatable to uh, the the a attack on women and women's bodies oh, that so are crazy. happening in the United States in 2023. So nothing exists really quite in a bubble without speaking to to anything now. And I think what Stone does at every single moment is a balancing act of yes, I'm kind of acting like a baby, but I'm not it's not really. Mm -hmm. It's hers isn't quite as cartoony as uh as Ruffalo's. Ruffalo's is very intentionally yeah. uh his his accent's a little ridiculous. It's a little Keanu Reeves and Dracula mm -hmm. kind of and, and very intentional. Very hammy. And hers is, it is quite literally a woman who is finding vocabulary in her voice. Yeah. And you cannot see it any other way than that. So you, amongst all the absurdity that's happening, you are watching and following the journey of this woman and absolutely intoxicated by it. There is an entire sequence involving her escaping to a brothel and becoming a worker there because she has no money and she understands the power and the value that she can have with it. And I, 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 it's my favorite sequence in the entire film because I don't think anything represents what the movie is trying to say more than that, that sequence. It also has Catherine Hunter, who is <laughs> an absolute goddamn legend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and just also in, in your package there, the physicality of this role yeah. that she's yeah. doing with her legs and her arms where she's actually not just you know in dialogue and vocally being going from baby to woman she's actually physically doing that and it's unbelievable what she's doing with her arms and her legs and twitching and running it's yeah. unbelievable yeah she she really goes from being an infant like you're saying there mm. to then the smartest character in the film and it, physical comedy not. is hard yeah, to pull hard. off and, with and she nails dialogue. it yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And also a dance sequence that takes the <laughs> takes the favorite and throws it out the window because the, and and lines of dialogue that I was I was literally on the other side of the road so and I could hear Eric scream of one particular line of dialogue uh, at a dinner sequence. That, that, so. Yeah, I mean Emma Stone's character is pro baby punching, so uh, <laughs> obviously I'm, I'm I'm totally on board with that. Um, but I am terrified by Tony because McNamara. to not have mm -hmm. maternal feelings that's the book exactly mm -hmm. I, I, I think Tony McNamara is Jeez. he is terrifying between the great mm -hmm. and this which happened at the same time I, I I'm in awe yeah yeah let's We're hope gonna... he doesn't have an existential crisis that'd be a hell of a movie <laughs> we'd love to see that um, we're gonna start wrapping it up here but I'm going to go around here one last film that you guys would like to highlight or maybe talk about that you guys got to see at the festival um, as everyone's pulling out their phones and pulling up uh, <laughs> pulling up their logs on Letterboxd to see what they what they talked uh, what they wanted to talk about. Sophia, do you do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm actually going to talk about a movie that you might want to talk about, so maybe we can talk about it together. But um, last night we saw the Royal Hotel which is Kitty Green's follow-up to The Assistant. And it's just this nice, tight, 91-minute thriller. And the it's about these two girls, um, played by Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick. And they're both fabulous in the movie. I love them. But they kind of end up, they're running out of money, and they have to basically go and like to this very remote area, work in a bar there for lodging, for money, and... 
it just suddenly you start to notice threats that creep in and specifically that revolve around alcohol and revolve around threatening men um, in that environment. And you just feel that remote environment, the isolation creep in and it is, it's terrifying. It's a really fun watch though. And it's, it's something that I think, I don't know, it, it hit close to home for me in a way, like it was very relatable and it, I don't know, I think though it's anchored by these two fantastic performances and it's just a nice, fun watch. Um, and Kitty Green really knows how to craft a subtle thriller. So she, I would recommend that one. She's, I think, a new master of tension. Mm-hmm. She, between the assistant and this, yeah. you are you are uneasy from the beginning. Yeah. And she, she, she stated right before the film, she wanted to make something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of unconventional when you think of two girls in a backpack going on like a trip, you think of a comedy or you think of something along those lines of like, hey, you know, they're going to find themselves. Yeah. And they kind of find themselves here, but they find themselves in a lot of the wrong mm-hmm. reasons in the interesting dynamics about men and uh, almost the original drug, which is alcohol and how mm-hmm. it's used and as it's weaponized here. I, I, I found it to be really fascinating and, and another step up for, for Kitty Green mm-hmm. after the assistant. But Christina... Film highlight. Oof, it's hard to. I'm going to try to speak to two as quickly as possible. But the other, the other one is another, the other can title with um, Sandra Huller, and that's the Anatomy of the Fall, which is also I'm going to use the M word, a masterpiece, and also the M word, marriage, that we were talking about <laughs> to begin with. And this is a um, part courtroom drama um, because I don't think it's a spoiler. It's in the trailer that the husband dies and she's accused of the murder. And it's also part an examination of this couple's marriage where their son is learning about his parents and their marriage and all kinds of things because of the trial. And it is absolutely incredibly directed, written tense. And there's a particularly one fight scene between the couple that is horrifying but also extremely relatable. If you've been in any sort of relationship, that's really about, I'm doing more than you, you're doing more than me, and what this escalates into and how horrible it can sound and the demands one is putting on each other and also the sort of failure you feel that you are so you're taking it out on the rest of your family and I thought this was incredible. Yeah, I mean... So, and I think you agree, I don't know if we want to... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved it. I think it's, I think it's another masterpiece. I would have... If I was, I think it was a tough decision at Cannes this year as to which one they were going to give the Palme d'Or. Honestly, I would give it to Zone of Interest, but but this is not far behind it. It's an extraordinarily tight, tense courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Every word and every action that Sandra Oler has from the present and the past mm-hmm. is weaponized and used against her. And, and, and then she, she has to fight back and... Um, I, 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 and a fascinating look at the French court system. Yes, yeah, so the French court system. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, truly one of the more horrific scenes I've, I've seen with an animal in quite some time. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, there's a, a child that is uh, the child performance in the film as well. It's an absolutely captivating performance. Um, yeah, one of the best free plays, if not the best free play of the year, maybe. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. I think it was... No, you it, don't have time for that? I think it was incredible. It's mm-hmm. uh, I, I know I, I said it was Kramer versus Kramer meets Basic Instinct, and I still maintain that that is... A lot more snow. A 
a, a reasonable comparison. <laughs> Obviously more Kramer versus Kramer. Um, no, I, I, I think it's amazing. I think I think a lot of, uh, you know, cinephiles, you know, know who Uller is. Uh, they are going to be absolutely inundated by her this year with her two incredible major, major films. Mm. Um, I really liked the very last film that we all saw together today, which was called Tuesday. And I'm going to butcher the director's name and I'm going to feel really terrible about doing it because I've never heard or said it out loud. Uh, and it's Dana on Ugh. Onunas Husik. Let's just say it's that. Yes. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and it, it is, a, again, a great, a great way of storytelling that is slightly supernatural, slightly fantasy-based, uh, where death is a literal creature that goes through the world when people are at their time of death to... W literally wave them into their their next f form and it is this kind of really outrageous weird parrot creature um and Julie Louis Dreyfus is the main star and it is kind of a surprise seeing her in something like this yeah. because it is just it's just not really Anything that she's really done before, um, but she's quite amazing in it. And I just, I just found it to be um, very entertaining, silly when it needs to be, but visually stunning when it needs to be too. I mean, this is obviously a very small independent film, and the visual effects of the bird itself, which is a major, major character in the film, is pretty extraordinary. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I'm always now going to be quite a sucker for, for parent-child stories. Obviously, I lean more to father-son stories. That's not, like, a big surprise, uh, but I really enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. I think also Lola Pettigrew as her daughter in the film, too. Was, yeah. They have extraordinary chemistry, and this was the most I've cried, um, at a film in quite some time. Uh, for all of our listeners out there, I pulled a Pinocchio or an After Sun or even a, or even a, a Luca, to be fair. Um, I was uh, an emotional wreck and it kind of snuck up on me how, um, yes, some of the, the things in the film could seem a little heavy-handed in the execution of it, but I think the sincereness of the filmmaking and the, the, just the connection of the performances are extraordinary yeah, I would not expect Julia Louis-Dreyfus to be in a movie like this, but I really think she she does a fantastic job. And um, for a debut, I thought I was surprised, and, and I had no I had no um, ideas on what the damn thing was going in, and, and uh, it really yeah it surprised actually, me and knocked me out. It's one of the few films that I have ever gone into knowing absolutely nothing, mm -hmm. and I knew literally nothing going into it at all it was I I saw it because of a recommendation and I was definitely going to see it because of the recommendation mm -hmm. uh, and so it's yeah it was it was really a pleasant surprise um, I'm gonna just last film and then we'll wrap it up here to talk about a movie that I was very mixed on 
and put me in a bad mood on Friday. Um, and that was Pablo Lorraine's Arcande, um, which is uh, about Pinochet being a vampire. Um, still don't know what this movie and who this movie's for. Um, I think that on paper, it is a, a really fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. Talking about um, dictators being soulless, blood-sucking vampires, but also about the legacy that they leave behind. And I, I think that that is a fascinating thing to talk about. In the execution, though, Pablo Lorraine does not really make an interesting enough film. And um, it doesn't mean that the film is bad. I just don't think that it works on every single level that he wants it to. Um, there's uh, there's some, some a lot of scenes with his family that I think early on are really good. There's a, a, a character mm -hmm. that's like a nun that comes in that doesn't work at all, I think, in sort of connecting it right to be it. And then yeah. there's, and then if there's uh, good old Margaret Thatcher that just shows up as well, too. And yeah. you're just kind of sitting there mm -hmm. going, by that point, what the hell is this? And it also feels like the movie's trying to end three times and doesn't find one until the third one when it mm -hmm. probably should have been the first one. So, um, And it was a bummer, too, because it's Ed Lockman cinematography. They which shot is it, gorgeous. Which is gorgeous. Yeah. And they shot it on black and white. Mm -hmm. They didn't convert it. Uh, Lockman was there. Um, Lockman had some pretty touching uh, things to say about mm -hmm. Lorraine and his daughter before um, Ed Lockman's daughter before the, the screening that were actually more emotionally impactful than anything in the film. Uh, but yeah, not a I yeah gotta stop watching uh, Lorraine films at uh, at film festivals for mm -hmm. myself. I think yeah, I'm I'm not really a huge Pablo Lorraine fan. Um, I'm pretty hot and cold on him too. This one I really didn't click with its sense of humor. And I, I always have trouble when I can feel what a movie's trying to say in the first few minutes. Mm -hmm. And that was the case definitely with this one. It is, I will say, beautiful to look at, though. Like, there are really stunning visuals because of Ed Lockman. And like you said, the concept is a great one in theory. And There's a good couple chuckles in The it. initial, like, the first 15 minutes of the movie, I really liked yeah. i was very into like the history behind it and his connections between like dictators throughout time the and the immortality and how that connects you know dictators and vampires and i thought that was very clever and then it just started to once it got into the rhythm of the rest of the narrative that's when i lost a bit of interest and kind of fell off of the movie so yeah one i mixed on too i would say yeah but otherwise that's really everything that we've seen here at the festival. A few and, others. But yeah, a few others in between, but for, for the most part, that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll be all back here probably next year for the 51st, doing the same podcast and, uh, and talking about, of course, different films. Well, unless, you know, you know, they just want to rescreen all this stuff again, which would be fine with me because there's a lot of great films. But anyway. Sophia and I want a third time. It's so, third time. Oh <laughs> I want it. I tried to go today. Yeah. yeah. Sophia, can you tell everyone where we can find you and all your work on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on um, Twitter slash X at Sophia underscore Sim. You can find me on Letterboxd um, with the same handle, just no underscore. You can find my podcast, Oscar Wilde. See, I'm losing my voice. I've just been talking all weekend. Um, you can find my podcast, Oscar Wilde, at Oscar Wilde Pod. We release episodes every Friday. I'll have another like, Telluride recap there, going through all the fall festivals. And then you can find all of my reviews from this festival and more to come later this season at Awards Watch. 
You can find me on X at Christina Biro, same on Instagram. And my podcast is Pop Culture Confidential, where I interview filmmakers and actors and you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so listen there. Follow me wherever you get your podcasts. Please go and listen and follow uh, Christina's podcast. It's truly amazing. Not just when we're all three on. During but, the fall, there's going to be interviews pertaining to, to Telluride. The They'll be coming. So please listen <laughs> yeah. to that. And yes, go read Sophia's work. Fantastic and, uh, reviews for Saltburn and uh, and Nyad and uh, and Wildcat to come. Eric, yes. Where can we find you? Oh yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at awards underscore watch and awards watch everywhere else uh, without that underscore and of course awardswatch.com. Uh, you did not get a newsletter this week because I'm a, lazy, I'm a lazy hoe. Uh, but you might get one just randomly this week. So, <laughs> yeah. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, or Ryan McQuaid 77 You can find all my work here at awardswatch.com. If you could, please go and listen to our other podcast, which is Director Watch. The latest episode this week will be Jay and myself talking uh, about uh, Enemy in our Denis Villeneuve movie series. Uh, so Eric's very excited about that because he's talking about his man Jake Gyllenhaal um, yes please do go and uh, subscribe to the newsletter you get it twice a week usually um, if Eric's not being lazy and uh, what else oh yes like review and subscribe to on iTunes and Spotify give us five star reviews if any if you don't give us five star reviews we're not going to read them we're not going to talk about them that's not nice so just five star reviews please all around next week we won't be here because we'll be at Toronto and we won't have time to record anything. But we will be back in two weeks to do a uh, Toronto International Film Festival wrap-up just like this. So thank you all so much for listening. And we'll see you all next time. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.